your Bible there, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we want to begin reading in verse 27. We've been slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, where the Lord Jesus has this to say. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. The Lord Jesus, in this particular passage, is addressing the subject of righteousness. How can a person be right with God. And he's impressing upon his hearers that if you could enter God's kingdom by means of good works, that your personal righteousness would have to excel and exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, if you don't know who they were or who they are, they were the most meticulous and detailed of Jewish leaders in ancient Israel. They were very concerned about the keeping of the law. And so not only did they look at the law as God had recorded it, but they wrote other laws around that so as to prevent them from breaking the central law. And they would even make yet other laws around the sub-law to prevent them from breaking the sub-law and thereby breaking the central law. They were very careful and very concerned that they should not be seen to be breaking God's law. But of course they did break God's law and they oftentimes fell foul of the most damning condemnations by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last time we were together in this chapter, we saw how the Lord extended the law on murder. Thou shalt not kill. And he thought within that, he taught within that understanding of the commandment that it referred not only to the physical act of murder, but to the very thought of murder, to the idea of even just hating someone. Well, this evening he turns his attention to a different uh, law altogether. He talks to, to us tonight about the sin of adultery. You know, according to a recent YouGov survey, one in five British adults have admitted to having had an affair. That's 20% of the population has admitted to having had an extramarital affair. And another third said that whilst they had not actually had an affair, they had considered the possibility of having one. Now, whilst men are slightly more likely to be repeat offenders in this area, you'll find that women also have cheated on their partners. And when you look at the numbers, it's essentially the same numbers. The same amount of women will have committed or have thought to have committed adultery as men. And so this is an act that is really becoming something rather every day in our society. It's becoming uh, more and more acceptable in our society. And certainly, we would probably all say it's, uh, it's a better thing than committing murder. You know, sh- nobody gets killed in the act of adultery. Well, Jesus brings us to this particular commandment, and he takes a, a fresh look 
at the subject of adultery. And, and what he's about to say is both radical and revolutionary. Notice in verse 27, he states the basic concept. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, once again, he begins this section by saying, you've heard by them said of old time. Now, remember, he is not revising the law. He's not changing the law. He's not criticizing the law. Remember, he is the author of the law. He is the one who gave us the scriptures in the Old Testament to begin with. He's the one whose finger inscribed upon the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments received by Moses. He's not, he's not even reasserting the law. What he's doing here is talking about the interpretation of the law and the application of the law that had passed down through generations of Jewish people as a consequence of rabbinical teaching. And he, he cites the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, I don't think there is anyone who would not agree with me that adultery is wrong. You know, scripture is very clear from beginning to end that adultery is a sin. And the rabbis consistently taught from the time of Moses onward that adultery was wrong. But the question in their mind was this, what actually constitutes adultery? I mean, if I just smile at a woman other than my wife, is that adultery? Uh, if I joke with her, is that adultery? And this was the kind of questions they were uh, trying to get to the bottom of. What actually makes an adulterer? What actually constitutes the sin of adultery? And so they, they debated that in that, their day. In fact, they debate that even in our day. A prominent website when discussing adultery statistics in our country pointed out that for some people, adultery might only include the physical act, whereas for others, flirting with another man or woman who is not your husband or wife would also be considered adultery. Well, the Pharisees, with respect to this debate, fell into the former camp. They said, unless intercourse actually occurred, that a man was blameless of adultery. He had to engage in the physical act in order to be guilty of this sin. But Jesus took a somewhat different view. Notice the broadened concept in verse 28. He says, what I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, Jesus was not saying that lustful desires are the same as lustful deeds. That is not what he was saying. He was not teaching that thinking about cheating is the same as physically cheating. But what he was saying is that like murder, adultery is a sin not just of the physical act, but a sin of the heart. It's about what goes on inside a person. And we see this very clearly in the example of David and his adultery with Bathsheba. Look with me in Second Samuel, if you would, in chapter 11. And let's rehearse the awful events that surrounded David's adultery with Bathsheba. Second Samuel, chapter 11. <coughs> Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So effectively what happened here 
is that there's a battle going on. David's army is out fighting the Ammonites. They've defeated the Ammonites. They're now sitting at the gates of the, their capital city, Rabbah. And here was the custom. When you got to that point in the battle, you sent somebody back for the king. And the king came out and he joined his troops in the last hurrah. And he was the one who claimed the victory. So they, they were wondering where David was. He was supposed to join them here at the gates of this capital city of Rabbah. But he tarried still at Jerusalem. In other words, there was a dereliction of duty. And in verse 2 it says, It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. Remember, they had flat roofs. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Now, let me begin by saying this. When it says that David saw this woman, and he saw a woman washing herself, he isn't to be faulted for what he saw. It wasn't his fault that he had seen the woman. There was very little he could do about that. He was just out on the rooftop, and he looked down, and there she was washing herself. By the way, that too was not something unusual. It wasn't that she was flaunting herself, that she was somehow seeking to be a temptress. It was just a case that people washed themselves on the roofs of their houses. And usually there was some degree of covering uh, around them when they were doing that. So David uh, sees Bathsheba from the roof of his house and uh, he thought she was very beautiful. And the Bible says indeed that she was very beautiful. So, you know, it wasn't that he just saw her, that that was the issue. You know, when Jesus says that whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's not speaking of just catching a glimpse of a woman or or an unavoidable sight. He was speaking about a lingering and long look at a woman. You know, in our society, I think at this stage it's almost impossible uh, to go through the, the world as it is and not see at some point some sexualized or sensualized image. They're all around us. They're on billboards on our streets. If you go into the doctors and you lift a magazine while you're waiting, you know, in all likelihood you'll come across an advert or an image or something that will distract your mind and you'll be faced with uh, women and, and, uh, and indeed men in various stages of uh, undress and what have you. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's not unlikely that you would see uh, such, a, such, a, such an image. And, uh, you know, in that respect, the same when you uh, click on an internet page or switch on your television or you see a movie or something like that, you're confronted constantly. We're all confronted uh, by certain forms of sexual provocation. So seeing those images is largely unavoidable. Jesus wasn't condemning that. That David saw Bathsheba from his rooftop wasn't the problem. That's as far as it should have gone. He should have just, when he caught caught her in his sight, he should have turned away and went back into his room. But he didn't do that. You see, we read that David sent and inquired after the woman. In other words, he overstepped the line. He went beyond that which was right and proper. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, you cannot stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. David allowed lustful thoughts about Bathsheba to dwell in his mind, to settle in his head, to to just uh, take up a place in his heart. And he imagined what it would be like 
to spend the night with such a beautiful woman. And so despite the fact that she was already married, and he was told she was already married, despite the fact that he was already married, and indeed had several wives and, and many concubines, he sends for her and he seduces her. He followed the standard path to adultery. Temptation, imagination, participation. That's the route to adultery. Temptation. When you see someone and you're attracted to them. And then imagination. You imagine being with that person. What it would be like uh, to be with that person. And then participation. The actual act of adultery. Now understand the Bible is absolutely wholesale in its condemnation of the act of adultery. Look with me in the book of Job, where we see one of the oldest books in the Bible uh, teaching us that uh, adultery is a horrendous sin, that it's a heinous sin against God. In Job chapter uh, 31, Job makes this statement, beginning in verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. He said, I made an agreement with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He said, For what portion of God is there from above, and what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked, and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways, and count all my steps? If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance, and God may know mine integrity. If my heart hath turned out of the way, and my, sorry, if my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blood hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat, yea, let my offspring be rooted out. Notice what he says in verse 9. If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, not that the woman is deceiving him, but that his heart is deceiving him about a relationship with a woman beside his wife. If mine heart hath been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door, I have deliberately sought her out, then let my wife grind onto another, and let others bow down upon her. Let him, let me have a taste of my own medicine. He says, for this is an heinous crime, yet it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. And I want you to notice that he calls it right there in verse 11, an heinous crime. Adultery is an heinous crime. It's a terrible thing. And it causes such heartbreak. And he was, he was right in this respect. It is one of the most destructive uh, of actions and practices imaginable. Uh, so, mo- so much so that it's one of the few sins under the law uh, of the Old Testament that carried a capital offense with it. In other words, if you committed ad- adultery, you could be subject to the penalty of death. Also, like Jesus, notice in verse 1 of Job's statement that he identified where the real problem lay. Notice he said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. There's one problem, what I see. But notice he goes on and discusses his mind. Why then should I think upon a man? Why should I then think upon a man? Why should I meditate? Why should I imagine? Why should I dwell on another woman beside my wife? You see, the issue is with the mind and with the heart. It's about your affections. And that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching us in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, right there in our reading. In verse 28, he says, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. James puts it this way. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth 
death. See what James says? Here's the pattern. He says it starts with your heart, he says, and, and your lust. He says you're, you know, you're drawn away of your own lust, and then you're enticed, and then you do what you, the thing you've conceived to do, and it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Now here's the question. How is any one of us, how is any one of us, any of us men, any of us ladies, how are we supposed to combat lustful thinking or lustful feelings in our hearts and minds? Well, Jesus gave the most radical answer to that question. Uh, Notice what he says in verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 5. He says, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now let me help you out here. Some people come to this passage and say, what in the world? Plucking your eye out? Isn't that a little extreme? You know, cutting your right arm off? You know, doesn't that seem a little over the top to you? And, uh, you know, here's the thing I want you to understand. Uh, this statement by the Lord Jesus is hyperbole. It's, he's simply exaggerating a point. And he's, he's making the point that, you know, really, uh, you know, adultery is a serious thing. He's not, for one instance, advocating mutilation. You see, a blind person or a disabled person is just as capable of having lustful thoughts or lustful feelings as, a, as an able-bodied person or a fully-sighted person. Because the problem is, is not with your eyes and with your hands. The problem is with your heart. And, it, and it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, pluck your eyes out, two eyes, or cut both your arms off. He just says, pluck out your right eye. Pluck off, cut off your, your right arm. And indeed, you know, even if you did, think, do, did do that, if you remove both your eyes and, and you remove both your arms, you still have the same problem. Because the problem is not so much one of sight or touch, but it's a problem of the heart. And you see this in Genesis 19 when you come to the account of Lot and the men of Sodom. And you remember the men of Sodom were filled with homosexual lust and they came beating on Lot's door trying to get at the strangers who were staying with him within his house. And and Lot, of course, tried to dissuade them. And when they wouldn't be dissuaded, the two men inside who were actually angels blinded all of them. And what do we find? That they wearied themselves at Lot's door trying to find their way in. In other words, even when they were completely blinded, the lust of their heart was still eating them up. No, blind people have lusts. Disabled people have lusts. Able-bodied people have lusts. Uh, Fully-sighted people have lusts. So this statement about plucking out the eye and cutting off the arm is really there to grab your attention, to make you think, to underline the gravity of the sin to see how serious it is and and how that we need to get serious about tackling our sin problem. You see, sometimes we downplay our sin problem. Sometimes we say, well, you know, it's not a lie. I just bent the truth. Or it was a white lie. Oh, it's not adultery. It was just an affair. An affair sounds almost attractive, does it not? But adultery is an ugly word. 
And you know, we could, we could go on down that vein. We have all kinds of euphemisms for sin that somehow lessen their import or lessen their, the damage of them or, or, or you know, somehow uh, take off the harshness of them. But friends, sin is sin is sin. And we have to deal with the sin question. You know why? Because the danger is great. Not just a danger in the case of adultery to your home or to your marriage or to your well-being. But Jesus says it's a danger to your very soul. He says that if you commit adultery, even in looking upon another woman, well then you are in danger of hell. He says it's better for you to have plucked out your eye or cut off your arm than to take your whole body and have it cast into hell. So the law on adultery has been significantly broadened. The Pharisee said, no, no, no. It's only if you actually commit the act that makes you an adulterer. But Jesus says, oh, no, listen, listen. That's too low a standard. He says, you want to know what God's standard is? If you even think about it, you're guilty of adultery. If you even think about it, you're guilty of adultery. Now, where does that leave us? Where does it leave you tonight? I would say it leaves us utterly condemned. Any hope that we ever thought we had of engineering our own righteousness and living in a way that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees is gone. It's out the window. Who hasn't had lustful thoughts at some point? Who hasn't sinned in their mind in this way? You know, like many in Jesus' audience, most of us might be able to say that, you know, well, I've never actually committed adultery. But how many of us can say, well, I've I've never had my head turned. I've never had a lustful thought. I've never looked at someone and, and, and admired them physically and sexually. Can you say that tonight? You've never had a lustful thought on any woman or any man but your spouse or... You've never once had your head turned, never dwelt in thoughts that would highlight the unfaithfulness of your heart, of your sinfulness. You see, here's the thing. Even the Pharisees couldn't hold themselves to this standard. Look in John chapter 8 for a moment. The Gospel of John in chapter 8. And this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Now, in some Bible versions, they tell you that the older manuscripts don't have this passage, as if somehow or other it doesn't belong here. You have to ask yourself this question. Why is the devil trying to get you to rip this passage out of your Bible? Because this passage has been preached by faithful preachers for generations and generations and generations. And people have been saved listening to these words. And now all of a sudden we're told they don't belong in the Bible. You know what that's called? It's called higher criticism. It's the basis of the old liberal movement. And, you know, we absolutely defy that. This passage belongs in God's word. And let's begin reading in chapter 1, chapter 8, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote in the ground as though he heard them not. 
So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and rolled on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So here's the situation. We have these Pharisees who come early one morning, Frog marching this poor woman right into the temple, into the, into the area where the Lord Jesus was, stood her before him, telling him that they had caught this woman in the very act of adultery. They had caught her in the very act of adultery and demanded that he should immediately pass a judgment upon her. Now these men were far less concerned with this woman than they were with the Lord Jesus himself. Look at verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have a reason to accuse him. So this was not about her. She was just a pawn in their game. They didn't care about her one way or the other. She was disposable. They could do her in if needs be. Their point was that we want to get something on Jesus. We want to find something that we can accuse him of. And so, you know, they're looking for him to perhaps pass a judgment upon her. If he does that, they would say, well, you know, you have no political authority here. You have no right to pass such a judgment. And they, he would have been reported to the authorities. Or if he had said, you know, let her alone, you know, leave her be, do nothing with her. They would have said, well, you're invalidating the, the law of Moses. Moses said that someone caught in adultery had to be stoned. You're obviously not a rabbi. You're clearly not a teacher from God, uh, you're a charlatan and, and uh, we would absolutely disavow you. And so either way it looks like Jesus is going to be in trouble. Whatever he does, whether he judges the woman or doesn't judge the woman, they're going to find some reason to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, notice in verse 6, and with his finger wrote on the ground. This is the same finger that inscribed the law. This is the same finger that wrote on the tablets of stone, thou shalt not commit adultery. Exactly the same finger. He begins to write on the ground. They are pressing him for a judgment. He seems to be aloof. He seems to be deep in thought and he's not responding and they're pressing him. What are you going to do about her? Come on, what's your decision? What are we going to do with this adulteress? Do something now. And then the Lord Jesus stood up, looked them in the eye, and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, I'm sure that this challenge in itself did very little to unsettle these Pharisees because, you know, in their minds, they were good people. They didn't commit adultery. They were above this woman. She was to be looked down upon. They were to be looked up to. And so when the Lord says, you know, whoever's without, the, without sin, let him first cast a stone at her, they probably were already gathering their stones, getting ready for some action, prepared to judge Jesus even. But remember 
how Jesus portrays these Pharisees. He gives a story on one occasion where he portrays one as coming to the temple altar and crying, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Can I say to you tonight, that's really what you're saying when you say you don't need to be saved. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you say, well, that's all right for them. That's all right for that lot down at Points Pass Baptist Church and other places like it. They need it to be saved, but I don't need to be saved. What are you saying? You're saying, thank you, God, that I'm not as other men are. I'm glad, God, I'm not like those sinners down in the, in the Baptist church. Really, it's a statement of self-righteousness. You're saying, I'm without sin. But there's a subtlety here in Jesus' question. When he says to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. There's a little subtlety that we miss in the English text. Because he wasn't so much saying, he that is without sin, as he was saying, he that is without this sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Him that is without this sin, the sin of adultery, let him first cast a stone at her. You know, could there be one man among them who had not harbored one lustful thought in his heart at some time? And so Jesus began to write in the sand. Now, what did he write? Well, this is a, a question that's open to debate. Some scholars say, well, he wrote the law, Deuteronomy 22 and 22, which actually calls for both parties in adultery to be stoned to death and not just the woman. God is a, is, a, is a just God. He wasn't going to favor the man over the woman. If, there, if the woman had been caught in the very act, well, then clearly there was a man that she was caught with. And Jesus was making the point, well, you know, you can't judge her alone. You'd have to judge the man she was with also. Others say that he perhaps wrote out the Old Testament texts calling for mercy, those Old Testament texts that call upon the Jews to show mercy. Possibly he even wrote out the name of her partner in crime because in that day it was known that certain Pharisees were indeed prone to use prostitutes and it may well be that they knew exactly who the other party was. I mean, it's a rather strange thing that they caught this woman in the very act. But notice there's a little telling detail in verse 9. It says, and they which heard it, they which heard this question being convicted by their own conscience. Now, I want you to get this tonight because this is, to me, tremendous. They that heard it being convicted by their own conscience. This was something personal. Whatever he wrote on the ground there, it bothered them. It bothered them to their very core. It shook them to their very roots. It addressed something in their lives that exposed their conscience and made them feel guilty. What did he write? Well, if you notice, in verse 9 again, that they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. You know what I think he began to do? He began to write their sins down, and in particular their lustful thoughts. He says, who among you has not committed this sin? And then he starts with the first fellow. We'll call him Levi. And he writes out Levi's sins. 
He says, Levi, here's the times you have lusted after women. Here's the times when you have looked upon women and lusted in your heart. And then maybe he, he looks at another one and maybe he's Samuel and he writes out the name Samuel and he says, Samuel, here is your sins. And he continues along that line from the eldest to the youngest. That's what it says. They went away not as one body, but from the eldest even unto the last, even unto the youngest. He begins by listing their names from the eldest to the youngest. Friends, did you know that Jesus knows your birthday? You know, I uh, just had a birthday a week or two ago. And uh, a company that sells clothes sent me a birthday card. Very kind of them. In the birthday card, there was a five-pound voucher. Should I make another order that I could get five pounds off? How did they know my birthday? Well, whenever I was buying some item or other, they asked for my details and I put my birthday in there and that was on their database and it comes up automatically and they send out these vouchers. Of course, it's not really a gift at all, is it? It's just a temptation to come and buy something else. But how did Jesus know these men's birthdays? How do you know who was the eldest and who was the youngest? Because, listen, friends, the Lord Jesus knows your birthday. And did you know that he knows every sinful thought and every sinful act and every sinful word that you have committed from that day to this? There's nothing you've thought. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've said. But that he doesn't know it altogether. Indeed, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God knows all about you. You know, you could be sitting out there looking at me and saying, This preacher's talking a load of old nonsense. I don't hear you say that. People around you don't hear you say that. But let me tell you something. God is reading your mind. God knows all about you. He knows what time you get up in the morning. He knows when you go to bed at night. He knows when you sit down for your tea and he knows when you stand up when you're finished. He knows where you go. He knows everybody you know. He knows everything you do. He knows everything you say. There's nothing about you that God does not know. God is not fooled by us. God does not have the wool pulled over his eyes by us. God is not deceived by churchianity. God is not in any sense deluded about who we really are. God knows exactly who we are. From the eldest to the youngest. He knows every single one of us. So the Lord Jesus began to write again. He said, He that is without sin among you, let him him first cast a stone at her. You see, beside their names, he began to write their sinful thoughts. Maybe even some of them had lusted over this very woman. God knows what you're thinking. Here's what the psalmist says. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou understandest my thought afar off. You know, uh, I've seen this numerous times in my Christian life where God knows my thoughts. Even recently, I was just sharing with someone, he and I were out one day and we were up in Marks and Spencer's in uh, Sprucefield. And uh, she was looking to buy something for the house. And there was an a, a artificial plant. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that plant. What's it called, Hazel? An orchid, that's it. <laughs> 
shows you what I know about plants. I could see the plant, but I couldn't remember its name. So there's an artificial orchid she was going to buy. And uh, she decided in the end not to buy it for whatever reason. And on the way home, we were just discussing our day out. And she says, you know, I have never, ever owned a real orchid. And I said, well, you know, why didn't you say something? We could have bought, I could have bought you a real orchid long before now if you wanted a real orchid. That wouldn't have been a problem. And so we stopped off at Rushmere Shopping Center on the way home. And we went into Sainsbury's. And we had a little bit of shopping to do, a little bit of milk and bread to get. So we got those few items. We're heading toward the till. And there are two Sainsbury's workers who are standing and they're gathering all the bouquets of flowers and plants in. They're putting them away. I guess they're coming out of date or whatever. And they're getting ready to get rid of this stock. And this woman is walking right past me and she looks at me and she says to me, this is her exact words, do you want to buy an orchid? How many days in the week are you asked do you want to buy an orchid? After you've just had a conversation about buying an orchid. What are the chances? No chance. And I took it to be the will of God. <laughs> I thought to myself, my goodness, if this, we've just had this conversation about a real life orchid. Here's a lady with a real life orchid. She's selling it to me for 50 pence, no less. <laughs> well, the Lord knows. He knows my thought afar off. I remember one day saying to Hazel, I'm going to get a rubber plant from my office. That very, that very day, somebody showed up at my house with a rubber plant. Unbelievable. Next time I talk to her, I'm going to say, I'm going to have, I would like a Lamborghini. <laughs> Not aiming high enough, obviously, orchids and rubber plants. But God knows all about your thoughts. He understands my thought afar off. You're not fooling him. He knows all about you. And God knows the dirty thoughts that cross our minds. He knows what's going on inside our heads and inside our hearts. He sees the real you and the real me. Not the one that you want the minister to see. Don't know the real you. Not the one that you want the people in church to see. Know the real you. The real you. The one who's thought all kinds of wicked things. God knows all about you. Now here's the interesting thing as we draw to a close. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11. How King David actually committed adultery. But scripture also says of King David, ultimately, that he was, in the Bible's words, a man after God's own heart. You say, well, how can the Bible say that about a man who actually committed adultery? Well, here's the thing about David. David acknowledged his wrong. He confessed his sinfulness. He confessed his sin and he forsook his sin. He cried against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You see, David faced his sin. He confessed himself a sinner. He didn't try to hide from God. He didn't try to camouflage his sin. He didn't try to, he didn't try to excuse his sin. He didn't couch it in fancy language so that it was less damaging somehow. He just came out with it and he said, Lord, against you have I sinned. You've sinned against God tonight. 
Because David was willing to come and confess his sin, say, Lord, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. Forgive me. He was a saved man. And his name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's recorded alongside all of those who were forgiven and have been forgiven. All of those who are the redeemed of God. His name is written in that book. Listen to me. If your name is recorded in that book, your sin is forgiven and forgotten. You belong to the Lord and your past with all of its guilt and all of its shame, all of its harsh words and all of its sinful deeds and all of its lustful thoughts, all of it is washed away in the blood of Calvary. You'll never have to face your sins Again, that's what salvation is. Never having to face your sins ever again. But in contrast, Jesus is speaking to this audience that includes these Pharisees. And as far as we know, only lustful thoughts were what crossed their mind. They weren't actually engaged in the act of adultery. And yet Jesus records in the psalm that day the lustful thoughts of their minds right there beneath their feet and accuses them of the very sin with which they're accusing another. And here's the way I see this, friends, as we close out. Either your name will be written down by the Lord or your sins will be written down by the Lord. Either he will record your name in his book of life or he will record your sins to be judged at his great white throne of judgment. You can be forgiven of all your sin tonight. Even the most heinous of sins. Adulterers can be forgiven. And you're still time. To have your name written down in the Lamb's book of life. To be counted among the redeemed. Or else you can just carry on as you are. And have your sins recorded by the finger of God. Only to be judged at the last. Listen to how John describes that awful scene at God's great white throne of judgment. Look with me in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. (coughs) Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, (coughs) from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, that's not the Lamb's book of life. That's a different book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, notice, according to their works. According to what they did, according to what they said, according to what they thought. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man, notice it says it again, in case you miss it the first time, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the Lamb's book of life. Well, friends, God knows all about you. He knows you from your birthday to this day. He knows every lustful thought, every sinful deed, every cruel word you've ever spoken. Which is it to be that God records before you meet him? Your name or your sins? Because he's going to read one or the other out. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life tonight? Can you say for certain tonight, I know my sins are forgiven. I know that Jesus has saved me. I know that heaven is my home. I know that I have eternal life. Or do you have to say, well, no, I don't know that. Friends, let's not play games with God tonight. We've all sinned. I've sinned. Everybody here has sinned. None of us are in a position to cast stones at the other. We're all guilty before God. But tonight, if you haven't already done so, come to Jesus. Ask his forgiveness. Have your sins cleansed. The record wiped clean. And your name written down among the redeemed in the Lamb's book of life. May God bless these thoughts to your heart.